Well, it's good to be back. Um, as he said, we were here, right your way here, bud, um, last August. And when I got home, uh, there was a note. Uh, we'd gone on vacation immediately after we went. We were here, and there was a note waiting from Joseph, which was really nice. And I, I looked in my, my Facebook messages, and I'd sent Joseph a message, and I said something to this effect. I can tell that something special is going on at Winchester, and that you've got a good thing going here, and that, that the people love you and Alex, and that you're, you're blessed to be there as well. I visit some places throughout the year, and you don't always get the sense that things are going well in every church. But I got that sense last year, and so I'm really thankful to be back again. Um, we don't always, I don't always bring my family with me when we get to do stuff like this, uh, just because it's, it's more difficult and you never know what you're getting into. Uh, but this was one of those situations when, I guess a couple months ago, um, Charlotte said, hey, you're going to be at Winchester. Um, why don't we all go? So this is one of those places, I don't know why, we didn't even talk about why. We were just like, yeah, let's take the whole family. In fact, we got to come up uh, yesterday afternoon. We spent the afternoon at Tim's Ford at the park uh, hiking around, which was beautiful and a lot of fun. We really enjoyed that. So it's just great to be here. Um, we're, we're honored to be a part of this day. I'm also very proud that you guys are supporting um, Mitchell and Rachel um, in Cusco, Peru. That was home for us for several years before we had to come back to the States. Talked a little bit about that last year. And uh, I'm just so proud that they are now there. Of course, Mitchell went through a pretty rough time, first week or two that he was there. But we're glad that he's doing good. Um, so it's just it's great to be here. Um, great to see all of you and thankful for this opportunity. About two years ago, I think it was, maybe, maybe nearly three now, um, I got a, a call from the president's office at Freed Hardeman. Now, I'd only been there, I guess by that point in time, maybe two, two and a half years. And you don't ever want to get a call from the president's office that says, we, want you to, we need you to come to the president's office. It's like getting called to the principal's office. But I went to the, the principal's office, and it turned out he had this, this thing that he wanted me to do. It was another opportunity. In addition to my teaching responsibilities, he wanted me to take on an extra responsibility that was fairly significant. As an early professor, it would, he was sure to pitch that the pay raise would be helpful. And there were things about it that were several good things about it. And he said, pray about it for a couple weeks, and then, and then we'll talk about it and see if you want to do it. So my wife and I, we, we prayed about it. We talked about it. We prayed some more about it. We made pros and cons lists, and we prayed some more. And we ultimately came to the conclusion that this was something that God wanted us to do, that perhaps it was God's will that we do this thing that, that he wanted us to do, that, that the president wanted us to do. That this was an opportunity from God. So we came to that conclusion, but we thought, you know, we really ought to talk to some people that we trust in our lives and see what they think, see if they think this is a good idea as well. Now, we'd already made, we'd pretty much made up our minds, and we just expected all of these other people to confirm what we had decided. So over the course of a weekend, we talked to five different groups of people. I guess there were three individuals, three or four individuals, and a couple of groups, including my parents and the elders where I preach, and then three or four other trusted people in our lives. And every single one of those people or groups of people said, we don't think it's a good idea. We think you'd be, you'd be fine, you'd be good, but at this phase in your life with the other things that you've going on, we don't think this is, this is a good idea. Now that was really confusing for us because we thought we had determined that this was God's will for our lives and then we go talk to all of these trusted advisors in our lives and they say, actually, we don't think it's God's will 
for your life. And we listened to those advisors, and we didn't take advantage of the opportunity. And it turns out, I think they were right. But that was a confusing time in our lives, because we'd gone about trying to figure out what God's will was for our lives, thought we had figured it out, and then came to the conclusion that maybe it wasn't God's will. I'm guessing if you haven't been there before, or if you're not there right now, you will be in the future in a situation where you are trying to figure out what's next in your life. And usually when we talk about what's next in our lives, we're talking about this question, what is God's will for what's next? Perhaps you're facing a decision and there are two or three or maybe even four open doors of opportunity, and all of them are good. There's nothing necessarily sinful about any one of those open doors, and you've got to figure out which one of those doors is the right one. And for most of us, that's an important decision because we want to do what God wants us to do. We want to choose the path or the door that perhaps God has already chosen for us. We don't want to choose the wrong wrong direction. And usually when we're thinking about those sorts of choices and multiple open doors, we are thinking about We're asking questions about the will of God. Now, when we think about the will of God, let me kind of introduce you to this whole subject and concept this morning as we think about it the rest of the day. There's several different ways that we think about the will of God and talk about the will of God. In fact, maybe we could illustrate it like this. Let's imagine that that you went to Walmart last night. I mean, that's the thing to do on a Saturday night, right? Maybe you went out to eat, and what do you do? How many of you went to Walmart last night? Just see a show of hands. See, it's the thing to do, right? So you went out to eat, maybe you went to Walmart, And let's just say that a couple of you saw each other at Walmart, and you said to each other, hey, we'll see you tomorrow. And the other person responded, Lord willing. You know what they're saying, right? They're saying, if it is God's will, I'll see you tomorrow. But let's say that you left left Walmart, and I don't know, I'm making this up now. You drove to Chattanooga. I don't know, maybe it was early, and you wanted to eat something real good. What is it, about an hour away, Chattanooga, something like that? So you thought, we're going to eat somewhere really good. You drove down to Chattanooga, and you went through a part of town, or maybe you got off on the exit, and there was a guy standing at the end of the interstate exit holding up a sign asking for money or food. And so you dug some pocket change out of your pocket, and you gave it to him. Why? Because you wanted to do God's will. So there's a second way that you've thought about the will of God. But as you drove away onto the restaurant, your mind started going in different directions and you thought, what What if I'm supposed to spend my life dedicated to helping people in those sorts of situations? What if if my life's ministry is to be towards homeless people? Could that be God's will for my life? And in just in, in one evening in our little scenario there, you've thought about the will of God in three different ways. In fact, let me throw those three different ways onto the screen. First, we sometimes talk about God's will of decree. When we talk about God's will of decree, this is what's going to happen and what God is going to do regardless. A couple of examples from Scripture. In Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, this is where the apostles are praying. You ever heard a prayer where the person preached during the prayer? It's kind of what's happening in Acts chapter 4. They, they're kind of preaching in their prayer after Peter and John get out of prison. Here's what they say. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, watch this, to do whatever your hand 
and your plan had predestined to take place. So the apostles believed that what happened in Jerusalem surrounding the death and burial, the crucifixion of Jesus, they believed it was a part of the plan, the sovereign plan of God. So when we talk about this type of the will of God, we're saying that God is sovereign and He will do what He pleases. Another example of this is found in Isaiah chapter 46. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Watch this. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. So sometimes we talk about God's will of decree, what will happen because God is God. And we might include in this things like the creation and the crucifixion and the resurrection. I feel a little more iffy thinking through this from the perspective of, of life and death, which we believe are in the hands of God, those, those are more difficult to think through. But sometimes we talk about God's will of decree. Secondly, we sometimes talk about God's will of desire. And this is what God wants from His people. So a great example of this is found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So when we talk about the will of God from this perspective, we're talking about doing the will of God. A couple of other examples let me throw on the screen. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So not only are we talking about what God is going to do, but sometimes when we talk about the will of God, we're talking about what God wants us to do. We do the will of God. One other example, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, watch this, equip you with every good that you may do his will. So God wants us to do his will. So we've got God's will of decree, God's will of desire. And the third way that we sometimes talk about the will of God is this one, God's will of direction. And when we talk about God's will of direction, we're asking the question, what is God's plan for my life? What is God's plan for what's next in my life? Now this is the one that I think is probably the most relevant, and especially relevant for everybody, but maybe for some of our younger folks. I think the teens are back there on the back row together. You start thinking about this right now because you're thinking about what is God's will for after high school, right? Some of you are thinking, what am I supposed to do for college? And then, I don't know if we have any college students, if there are any college students in town right now, but if you're in college, and that's who I work with on a regular basis, they're asking serious questions about what's next in their lives. They're trying to figure out, hey, what should my career be? What should my major be? And then what should my career be? Perhaps there's some people here who are in the dating stage of their life right now. And you're thinking, asking questions like, is this person God's will for the rest of my life? I hope if you are dating, you feel awkward right now because I even brought it up. But some of you are, are feeling that right now. And then as you get beyond those stages, maybe some of you are in a stage of life right now where you're thinking about a, a job change or maybe even a career change. And you're wrestling with that and you're thinking, is this... Is it God's will that I stay in the job that I, I'm in right now or, or take this job? Or some of you are thinking, well, at what point is it God's will that we have kids or another kid 
or another kid. And then, as life goes on, you think about things like, well, what's God's will for, for retirement? What am I supposed to do when the, when the kids are gone? When we, we're in an empty nest, nest situation of life. So over and over and over again throughout life, we're faced with these decisions and we're asking, what is God's plan for my life or what is God's will for what's next in my life? Now, I may have just completely stressed some of you out by even bringing some of this up because you're facing these decisions and it can be really stressful because you want to do what's right. I think our motives for thinking through this question, what's God's will for my life, they're usually pretty good. And we get to the point sometimes, I think we can get rather obsessive about it. We think, okay, what, what am I supposed to do? What is, what is God's will? And I think there's a couple reasons that we, get, we can become a little bit obsessive about this. The first one is, it's a good motive. We want to do what God wants us to do. If it's the case that God has a plan for my life or a specific will for my life, I want to choose what He wants me to do. If God wants me to live in Winchester, well then, I want to live in Winchester. If God wants me to live in, in Nashville instead of Chattanooga, well, I don't, want to live in, I don't want to end up in the wrong place where God doesn't want me. If God wants me to, to marry this person instead of the person that I'm with, well, I don't want to stay in this relationship and end up with somebody that God doesn't want me with. If it's God's will for my life that I end up, that I take this other job, well, I don't want to stay in the job that I'm in. Sometimes we get rather obsessive about figuring out God's will because we want to do what God wants us to do. Now, The second reason that I think sometimes people get a little obsessive about figuring out God's will is because they are timid and indecisive. You ever known a non-committal person? You ever dated? Back in your dating days for some of you, you ever dated a person who was non-committal? And maybe that's why you didn't end up with them because they just couldn't make up their mind. You ever talk to somebody like this who maybe you, they've got a decision to make about what's coming up next. And so you say, hey, how's that going? What are you thinking about doing? And they say something like, well, I'm trying to figure out God's will. And the really spiritual word is trying to discern God's will on this one. Because you say, okay, I'll be praying for you. So you come back a couple months later. You say, hey, how'd it go? What decisions did you make? And they say, well, I'm really still, I'm still praying about it. I'm still trying to discern God's will. And it sounds really spiritual, but I think there are some people who just keep thinking through that because they don't want to make a decision. And some people, they want to know exactly what's going to happen before they make a decision. Now let me give you a preview of the rest of the day. God is not likely to tell you exactly what path you're supposed to take. And He is likely not going to tell you what's going to happen if you take whatever path it is that you're going to take. But we want that, and some people expect that, and they end up really disappointed and frustrated when God doesn't give them that information that they're expecting, and so they don't ever make a decision. When I think about people who, who work like that and function like that, I think about Esther. Turn your Bibles to Esther chapter 4 for just a minute. While you're turning there, you know how when you go on a trip, you always forget something? Right, I mean, it's just going to be something. And you usually hope it's like toothpaste or something you can stop at a convenience store and buy. But it's never that. It's always something really, well, I forgot my Bible this weekend. Yeah, how about that? I'm supposed to come preach somewhere and I forget my Bible. 
I have my iPad, and I usually don't use my iPad Bible to preach from. Nonetheless, here we go. At least I have this. So Esther chapter 4. Now you remember the story. Esther wins a beauty contest, ends up in a sense in the king's harem, one of his wives, and her cousin Mordecai finds out that Haman, one of the king's advisors, has hatched this plan to extinguish the Jews, to kill all the Jews. And so he sends word to Esther and says, listen, you've got to do something about this. You are in a position to save your people. And she sends word back and says, I don't think so. If I go to the king uninvited, well, he could have me killed, so I'm not going to do that. And so Mordecai sends word again. And here's what he says. This is chapter 4 of Esther, verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. So if you don't do something about this, you're going to die too, Mordecai says. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now that's kind of one of those verses where like, ooh, there's the will of God. Maybe Mordecai's saying, maybe it was God's will that you came into this position at this time. Here's Esther's response, verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. You know what Esther does not do here? She does not say, hey, give me a couple weeks. I'm going to pray about it and try to figure out God's will on this one. Now she does say, tell everybody to fast and pray for three days. But that fasting and praying was not for the purpose of trying to figure out God's will. That fasting and praying was for the purpose of trying to beg God for success in this effort. You see, sometimes we're timid. We focus on and get obsessive about the will of God because we don't want to make a decision. We want to know that everything's going to turn out right. Did Esther know that everything was going to turn out right here? No. She says, okay, I'm going to do it. Let's fast and pray for success. If I perish, I perish. She she knew that it was a strong possibility that she might die if she chose this path. She had no guarantee that it was going to work out well. But she did it anyway because it was the right thing to do. And so perhaps she gives us some insight into what figuring out the will of God actually looks like, that it's not as mysterious and spiritual as it might sound that sometimes we make a decision when we don't know the outcome of that decision because it's the right thing to do. Now, having said all of that, let me, let me tell you where we're going this morning. During the, our worship period this morning, during the sermon, we're going to keep wrestling with this question. What's it look like to figure out God's will? Is this a, a legitimate way to view God's will, that God has a, a specific will for my life and I'm supposed to figure that will out? Or could there be a simpler, more biblical solution to the way that we view this puzzle sometimes? This afternoon, now I know that coming and and listening after a meal is rough, um, but I promise I'll keep it a little shorter. Um, If you ever wonder if your preacher has your back, he does, because he reminded me this morning, hey, that after, after lunch thing, it's a little bit shorter. So he's got your back, and I understand that. So a little bit shorter. Here's what we'll do this afternoon. We're going to ask the question, how does God guide us? 
in these decision make, the decisions that we have to make. And that's going to kind of add on to what we talk about this morning. Let me tell you, before I tell you what we're going to do with the rest of our time right now, let me tell you my, my primary sources, all right? So I wish I was just smart enough to come up with all this myself, but I've done some reading. About a year and a half ago, I started reading on the will of God and what this looks like, and I found four sources that were most helpful to me. And these are the ones that I would recommend if you're ever interested in doing some reading on the will of God. Um, Weatherhead's will of God, there's the little thing, uh, helpful. Uh, Discovering God's Will, it's just a little booklet by Andy Stanley, has been helpful. R.C. Sproul's book, Can I Know God's Will, is also helpful. And then Kevin DeYoung's Just Do Something, probably the most helpful one. Um, in fact, I would say that he has influenced my thinking on what I'm going to say today more than any of these other books. So that's just kind of gives you some credit. I want to give some credit to where credit is due as to where um, some of my sources for um, what has helped my thinking the most on some of this today. But here's what I want to think through for the next 15 minutes or so that we have. What can I do now to prepare for what's next even when I don't know what's next? Because here's the thing. Something is next for you. Maybe it's post-high school. Maybe it's college. Maybe it's a career. Maybe it's, maybe it's a wedding. Maybe it's babies. Maybe it's a career change. Maybe it's empty nest. Maybe it's retirement. Something is next for you. And most likely, you don't know what that is. And so before we really kind of dive into figuring out the will of God later on this morning, I want to ask this question. What can I do now to prepare for what's next when I don't even know what's next? So this is kind of pre-will of God stuff. What can you do now? And to figure that out, I want us to turn to the book of James. So if you have a Bible, please turn to James chapter 1. And we're going to read from three or four verses that are really familiar. Some of you could probably quote these verses to me today. But James chapter 1, let's start with verse 22. And again, here's the question. What, what do I do now to prepare for what's next? When I don't even know, I'm not there yet. I'm not in next yet. don't even know what next is. Verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. So during James's day, they didn't have written copies of Scripture. The average person wouldn't have had a copy of Scripture or an iPad to read from. They likely would have gone, their dose of, of the Word of God would have come when they went to meet with other Christians and they heard the Word of God read. Or somebody who had the ability to prophesy could, tell the, could speak to them the Word of God. And so they didn't read the Word of God. They would hear it. And James says, hearing the Word is not enough. If you think that hearing's enough, then, then you're wrong. Perhaps today James would say, don't just be readers of the Word, be doers also. But here's, I think we're similar. We do a similar thing because we think that we can come to church once a week, maybe two or three times a week, and as long as we hear the Word, and man, Joseph says something that really convicts you and you walk out and you're like, man, that was good. And you get this feeling of conviction and then you walk out and you don't do anything about it because you think, well, I've heard it and it was convicted and that's enough. That's good enough. And James says, that's not good enough. In fact, if you think it's good enough just to hear the word and be convicted by that, you are deceiving yourselves. Instead, James says, don't just hear it. You need to do what you hear. And he gives this great illustration. This is verse 23. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like, so here's his illustration, he is like a man 
who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. So imagine a guy goes into the bathroom on Sunday morning before church, looks in the mirror, and here's what he does, verse 24, for he looks at himself and goes away at once and forgets what he was like. So here's the guy who goes to the mirror, he looks in it and he looks at it and thinks, oh, that's not good. I need to fix that. But then he walks away from the mirror, he does nothing about it, gets dressed, comes to church, and he's, whatever was wrong is still wrong. He looks in the mirror, sees something wrong, and does nothing to fix it. James says, when you look into the Word of God and don't do anything about what you see in the mirror of God's Word, you're like a guy who looks in the mirror, sees something wrong, and doesn't do anything about it. You see, mirrors reveal things about us, don't they? We look in the mirror, we see something that needs to be fixed, and, and then we, we fix it, at least the best we can, Right? In fact, I can tell you this morning exactly how long you spent in front of the mirror until it got better, right? You, you stood in front of the mirror until it got good enough, it was better enough that you could walk out the door and say, okay, I'm good enough to come, come to church today. But here's what we do with God's Word sometimes. We look into the mirror of God's Word and we see something that needs to be fixed in our lives. And sometimes what we do, instead of saying, okay, it's time to fix it, we say, you know what, I'll fix that in the next phase of my life. You ever done that before? High school students are tempted to do it by saying something like, okay, I see this thing that I'm doing that I shouldn't be doing, or this thing that I should be doing that I'm not doing. I'll wait till I get to college to straighten that out. When you're in college, you say, okay, I see what needs to be done. I'm, once I get out of college, I'll be good. Before you're married, you say, okay, there's, I'm looking into the, the mirror of God's Word. There's something wrong. I need to do something about that. Once I'm married, that'll be easier. And before you have kids, you do it. You're like, okay, I need to change this. But you know what? When I have kids, that's when I'll start taking this a little more seriously. Then I'll change. And it just goes on and on through life. Once the kids are out of the house, that's when I'll have time. That's when I'll change. Or once I retire, then, then I'll have time to do this stuff, to change these things that I need to change. And here's the reality of the matter. If you do nothing now, you'll likely do nothing later. We fool ourselves into thinking that, okay, I know I'm looking into the mirror. I see something wrong. I need to change that, but I'll fix that later on. And we fool ourselves into thinking that we actually will. I'm guessing there's a room full of people or maybe a few dozen people in here who would tell the rest of us, I've been there. I've said I was going to change when the next thing came and I haven't done it. And James says when we do that, we're fooling ourselves because when we do nothing now, it is more likely that we will do nothing later when we say we're going to do something about it. And watch how he concludes verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty say a lot about that and perseveres being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts will be blessed in his doing james says when you look into the mirror of god's word and you do something about it now and you don't say i think i'll wait till the next phase of life there is blessing to be found in that obedience now here's what it doesn't mean that we will be blessed in our doing. It doesn't mean that everything in life is just going to work out fine and you won't have any problems. No, but you know, I'm guessing that some of you looked into the mirror of God's Word in an earlier phase of life. You did not say, I'll wait till the next phase of life. 
You said, I'll do something now about it. And you were experiencing the blessing of obedience now. Some of you looked into the Word of God earlier in life and you took seriously what it said about being generous, about giving, and what especially Proverbs says about saving. So early on in life, you didn't spend every dollar that came through your bank account. You gave generously and you saved. And some of you are experiencing the blessing of that now. Blessing of financial freedom. Some of you in an earlier phase of life held some bitterness in your hearts, maybe towards someone else. And you looked into the Word of God and you saw what it said about forgiveness and you thought, I'm not going to wait till later. I'm going to learn to forgive now. And now, several years later, you are experiencing the peace that comes with a life of forgiveness that you would not have experienced had you said in that earlier phase of life, I think I'll, I'll wait till later. So here's, here's my point. What can you do now to prepare for what's next when you don't even know what's, we haven't even talked about what it looks like to figure out what God's will for our lives is. What can you do now to prepare for what's next when you don't know what's next? If you don't remember anything else from this morning, here's the one thing I hope you'll remember. Obeying now is preparation for obeying later. Obeying now is preparation for obeying later. Our tendency is to say, I think I'll just wait till the next phase of life. Because it'll be easier then. But as we've said, when you choose, to, when you think, well, I'll do it later, I'll obey it later, it often never happens. And again, there are probably dozens of people in this room right now who are illustrate, you would, you would gladly volunteer this information to people who are younger than you and say, listen, if you think that you're going to do it later, that's not always the case. Now, listen, I know that some of you in an earlier phase of life didn't, didn't obey. You didn't, you didn't follow God's Word, but you've, you've changed and you have made the changes and that's great. But I'm guessing you would still say to those who are younger than you, don't do what I did. Don't, don't wait I know a guy right now in the church where I preach. Wow, he's great. So involved, so helpful, so encouraging. But he went through an entire phase of his life where he was busy in his career and very successful in his career. And faith went to the side. In fact, he just didn't do faith at all. And now when he talks about that, you can hear the urgency in his voice when he speaks to other people and he says, listen, don't do what I did. I have so many regrets. And I'm just fortunate that God spared my life for this long to turn things around. So for those of you who are maybe in the shoes of you've done this before, you've said, you know what, I'm going to wait till later. I'm going to wait till the next phase of life. Please communicate to those who are younger than you, who are in the phases of life that you were in previously, and please, please mentor them and tell them, don't do what I did. Obey now. Because when you obey now, it sets you up. It puts you in a habit. It helps you develop a habit that you can, can continue later on in life. So let me ask you two questions as we, we wrap up this morning to help you think through this. Number one, what are you doing now that you should not be doing, but you said, I'll stop doing it later. So what, are you, what is it that you're doing right now? You've looked into the law of God's Word. 
and you've the mirror of God's word, and you've said, "Okay, I can't. I don't need to be doing this." But you've said, "I just can't. I can't stop this right now. I'll wait till later." What is that for you? It's that thing that you need to stop doing now, but you said, "I'll, I'll wait till later." Maybe it's time to obey now, to set you up to obey later. Here's the second question. What are you not doing now that you need to be doing? And you've said, well, I'll, I'll start doing that later. Let me give a great example, maybe for college students or high school students. Um, college students are, are really busy. I work with college students, and they, they complain about it. They're like, oh, we're so busy. And I think sometimes they use that as, that as an excuse to not develop a habit of quiet time or a habit of spending time with God every single day. You ever been there before where you're like, I, need, I really need to be spending time every day in prayer and some time in the Word? But I'm so busy right now, I'll, I'll wait till later. I'll wait till the next phase of life. You know what most of us discovered? You've probably discovered it too. It doesn't get any better, does it? Life doesn't get less busy. College students think, well, this is the most, I'm so busy, I can't handle it. There may be a two or three years after you're married where you can go home every night and watch Netflix and job responsibilities aren't huge, but not usually. Eventually, once kids come and advancements in the job, it only gets worse. And there's less time. And yet we said, well, I'll wait till later to start this habit. So what is it that you need to start now that you said, I think I'm going to wait till the next phase of life? You really need to start. You need to start doing it now. Because obeying now is preparation obeying later our house in our house um, we're pretty big fans of of moana right it's a big thing if you've got small some of you're like what who is who's this mona girl moana pretty big pretty big movie latest disney um, princess um again we could sing all the songs all that kind of stuff and there's any kids in here they would be singing the songs so here's the gist of the movie. There's this girl named Moana who is the daughter of the chief of this Polynesian tribe on an island. And she's going to be the next chief of her people, but, and she has big dreams. In fact, she has this song, I, don't wanna, I hope it gets stuck in your head, How Far I'll Go, because she's thinking, okay, this is, this is how far I'll go. But her people have said, her dad and the other people in her tribe, no, you need to stay, here's another song, right where you are. Just stay where you are. Now here's what Moana does. She looks in, She has a choice to make. She can either stay in the same place she's always been or she can venture out and do some incredible things in life. But here's what she does. She looks into the future and she realizes that if she doesn't do something, it's going to cost her people. The, the results will be devastating. So she refuses to listen to the voices that tell her to stay where she is right now, and she goes out on the sea and follow the whole movie. She does all this great stuff. And here's what she does. She saves her people. She saves her people. Now, I recognize that you're not Moana, and you're likely not going to save your people, but I think our situation is sometimes similar to Moana's because we have voices in our life, in our lives, that are telling us just stay where you're at. You're good. I know you've looked into the mirror of God's Word and it says, and you've realized, oh, maybe I need to change. Don't worry about that mess. 
you're good, you can stay right where you are. But you know that you're called to something more. And here's, here's the result of all this. While, while you may not save your people, if you look into the Word of God and you see something that needs to change and you choose to obey now rather than waiting till the next phase of life, you may not save your people, but you may save your future. And you may save your marriage in the future. You may save your children. You may save yourself. Why? Because obey now. Not waiting till the next phase of life when you don't even know what next is. Obey now is preparation for obeying later. 